Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, October 29th. This week, we'll talk to Finance Minister Bill Morneau. He met with the Ethics Commissioner late last week and announced he'll donate money made off shares of his former firm while in office to charity. So we'll ask the minister if this is an admission he did something wrong. Then, Baghdad rejects an offer from the Kurds to hold off on their move towards independence. With Canadian troops based in Iraq, is there a role for Canada to play to help prevent a possible civil war? Plus, heckling in question period. It's nothing new, but is it getting worse? And what does it say about civility on Parliament Hill? But first, what a week it was for Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Following the revelation he still holds about a million shares of his former firm, Morneau-Chapelle, the Ethics Commissioner is looking into whether Morneau broke conflict of interest laws by introducing a pension bill that could have boosted share prices. Facing intense pressure from critics, he's promised to sell those shares. And late last week, Morneau announced he'd donate the capital gains from the sale to a charity. Joining me now is Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Thank you so much for being with us on the program, Minister. Really appreciate it. Good. Happy I, wa- to be here. I want to ask you about your announcement uh, to donate any money that you make off the sale of the shares that you own in your former firm, Morneau Chappelle. Uh, by our calculation, first, I-, I want to ask you about the numbers. By our calculation, it's about something like $5 million. Is that correct? Well, I don't know, of course. I mean, stepping back, uh, the reason I'm doing this is to give confidence to Canadians that we're working on their behalf. and. In order to do it, I need to work with the Ethics Commissioner, so my financial advisors will work with them and and get to the conclusion. Of course, I can't know the outcome because it hasn't happened yet, but uh, we'll know soon. I guess our calculations are based, you said uh, a couple weeks ago you had about a million shares, Mm -hmm. and they're selling right now around $21 a share, so I guess around $5 million. So where, so where, where will you be donating the money? I haven't worked that out either. Uh, you know, as you probably know, my family and I have been very involved in the community and uh, a lot of charitable giving over our, our lifetime. Uh, the kind of things I've been involved in. You know, I was chairman at Covenant House, a home for street kids in Toronto. I've been donating to Covenant House. I was chairman at St. Michael's Hospital, a hospital for inner city people and others in Toronto, uh, where I've made a lot of donations. Uh, Right now, my wife and I are working to bring some uh, refugee girls from a school that we founded in a refugee camp in Kenya to Canada uh, in order to get a university education. So that's a project we've been working on for a while. So these are all ideas, but I don't actually have the answer to your question yet. So when will you determine that? Uh, We'll be working towards that in in the near future, but of course that's something that, you know, our family will come to together to figure out how to, you know, how we can have the biggest impact. Is donating the money at admission that holding the shares in the first place is a conflict of interest? Really no. I mean, let's just think about the steps here. You know, I, I came into office having had, you know, a level of success in the business community. That, uh, that meant I had to work with the ethics commissioner to find out the right way to arrange my affairs. And so when she recommended the approach that uh, she recommended, I, I took those recommendations. Really what I'm doing, uh, what I've done over the last week is to say to Canadians that the work that I'm doing now for me is, is as important as the work I did before in my business career was to me. I think this work's much more important. The work for Canada is much more important. And if there's something that, uh, that I can do to make sure people have absolute confidence, I'll do it. So taking those extra steps saying that you know my family and myself are going to sell the shares in the company that I built over 25 years with my father that was an important step i think for you know telling people that it's more important that i work on their behalf and the blind trust 
is really something that I just want to make sure people see that there's, there's another way of ensuring no conflict. And this final decision is one that's consistent with what I've done in the past. I've always been making donations. But in this case, it gives people absolute assurance because any gains that will, would have happened in, in those shares since the time I've been in office, we're going to donate and uh, you know, we're pleased to do that. But by acknowledging that Canadians need absolute assurance, are you also acknowledging that there was an appearance, maybe not a certain, but an appearance of conflict of interest? What I'm saying, Vash, is it's, it's really that what's happened over the last generations, what, what the other 337 MPs, how they're handling their affairs, which is on the advice of the Ethics Commissioner, uh, that people are, are asking whether that's good enough for a finance minister, and that's new. But um, since my goal is to work on behalf of Canadians and not to have these sort of questions, I'm taking these steps. Do you There's agree with their questions, though? Do you understand where they're coming from? Because I think when you say in the past you've called them distractions, it almost feels like you're belittling the concerns. Do you, do you agree that those concerns are valid? What I agree with is that we need to keep doing the things for Canadians that we've said we want to do. So, you know, this past week, as you know, we introduced a fall economic statement that was a fantastic report card on our economy. We, we made commitments to do additional things that are going to help Canadian families with more Canada Child Benefit and more tax credits for working people. So these are the sorts of things I want to get on. The, this uh, backdrop, uh, the discussion around my personal finances, is something that you know, shouldn't be something that's in the way of us doing that work. And so I'm just making sure it's not. And for myself and my family, uh, making donations, that's something that we, you know, we're, we've been lucky. And so doing that is something that we're, we're pleased to do. And if it has the, the benefit of making sure Canadians have absolute confidence, then that's great. With, with all due respect, though, that doesn't really answer the question that I asked, which is, do you agree that the, do you think that the Canadian that Canadians concerns over what appears to be conflicts of interest are valid or are you just trying to move on I um, I'm of the view that the recommendations that the Commissioner gave me to ensure that I didn't have a conflict of interest were appropriate those recommendations that we followed I uh, was a witness to those screens that have been in place for the last two years I uh, believe that uh, when people have questions uh, you need to listen to those questions and decide if there's a way that you can assure people that, that they're not something they need to be concerned with. And I've chosen a way to do that that makes absolute assurance uh, that, uh, that no one can have any question. And doing it in a way that's really consistent with my and my family's values is, uh, is positive. If you had a do-over, would you have done all of this earlier? We don't have do-overs in life. And uh, all I can say is uh, I am... Do you regret not taking these actions earlier? Let me tell you what I absolutely don't regret. I, I don't regret deciding to get into public life. I don't regret having the opportunity to make a huge difference for our country. I don't regret being part of a government that's had a huge impact over the last couple of years. And I'm certainly looking forward to having more impact. So if making sure that these steps enable me and us to have that impact in years to come, then they're the right steps. And the fact that they're, they're steps that you know, we're very comfortable taking, that makes me very comfortable doing it. And no regret over the fact that it did take some time to get those to get to those steps. Uh, not very long. I mean, really, what we're talking about is that uh, there's been some questions for a week, and uh, during that week, I evaluated whether what I'd been doing was absolutely making sure I was free of conflicts. I came to the conclusion it was, but I also had to consider whether people were going to keep asking questions, and I 
assumed they would. So in that context, I just decided to do something that uh, for my family and myself, you know, for my wife and myself, we think is the right thing to do. So um, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to do that. It will, of course, enable me to continue being a contributor to causes that are really near and dear to our heart, to making a difference in our community. So that's a positive. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks okay. for your time, Minister. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Late last week, the Iraqi government rejected the offer by the Kurdish regional government to freeze moving forward on its independence vote. Tensions in the country are escalating with Canadian troops on the ground there. Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman is the Kurdish regional government representative to Washington. And during her visit to Ottawa, I asked her about their offer to freeze the independence vote and those escalating tensions in Iraq. Here's that conversation. Uh, what do you say to those in Baghdad or elsewhere who might frame this as a capitulation? I don't know what a capitulation means. Uh, Prime Minister Abadi has been saying that we need to rescind or revoke or cancel the referendum, uh, the result, and then he will enter into dialogue. I'm not sure how you can cancel a referendum when it's already taken place when millions of people have already expressed their opinion. I don't know how you can do that. But what we can do is suspend the result of the referendum because clearly we have more urgent matters to deal with right now. The important thing for us is that Baghdad should cease the aggressive nature of its military positioning and begin talks with Kurdistan. We have not asked for talks specifically on the referendum. We have said that we're willing to discuss whatever Baghdad wants to discuss. You're here in Ottawa speaking with uh, officials in the Canadian government and Department of Defence about this issue. What are you asking of them? What we're asking from Canada and from other coalition partners as well is to encourage Baghdad to cease these hostile deployments of its troops to stop the Iran-backed militias from what they're doing and to encourage Baghdad to begin a dialogue with Kurdistan. Canada has tools that it can use. Canada has been a key partner in the coalition in the fight against ISIS. It has supported the Peshmerga, also Iraqi forces. Canada is an important player in the UN. There are many things that Canada can do. And if we look, for example, to the example of France, President Macron has offered to mediate, has offered dialogue uh, between Erbil and Baghdad. And I think we need more of that from the international community. Canada also has the ear of Washington. Mm -hmm. So this is why we're here and we're asking our friends to remember that we are friends and allies in the fight against Islamist terrorism and that we need Canada's support. Have you seen any indication from anyone you've spoken to that Canada is willing to play a role like one you've described? Certainly the members of parliament and the government officials that we've spoken to have listened to us and they've expressed their concern about the situation and a willingness to consider what uh, I have just set out. How important is it, do you think, for Canada to publicly articulate that kind of a position? And I ask because the US one has not been as clear. The U.S. actually is becoming more clear. Uh, of course, the U.S. position was to continually 
say negative things about the referendum, but we've gone way beyond that now. And I think there is a recognition in Washington. And last Friday, the State Department issued a very strong statement saying that the disputed territories remain disputed, even though Iraqi forces now occupy them and also asking for no more maneuvers on a military front by either side and a call for dialogue. Uh, we welcomed that statement by America. Secretary Tillerson also made similar statements when he was in Baghdad just a couple of days ago. So I think the US position is beginning to shift. Um, it is useful to have countries like Canada who, as I said, have taken a very prominent role in the fight against ISIS and in supporting Kurdistan and Baghdad in that fight. It is important that statements are made, and more than statements, that there is an engagement. Then it's clear to our partners in Iraq, to our neighbors in the neighborhood, by that I mean Iran and Turkey, that the Kurds aren't alone, that the international community wants to see an outcome that is peaceful and a good way of resolving the current crisis. Are you disappointed that you haven't heard anything specifically like that from the Canadian government yet? Uh, I wouldn't say it's just Canada. The international community at large hasn't been very vociferous nor very proactive. Um, I think they've tried to minimize the role of Iran in all of this, but the evidence is now overwhelming. So I think the they will, certainly in the United States, we're beginning to see a shift, and I believe in the international community will see that too. You could say that the international community generally takes time to act and react, but we are now two weeks into this, and we need the international community to act, and specifically, we're asking Canada not to choose between Erbil and Baghdad or Kurdistan and Iraq. You don't have to choose between us. You can support both of us. Otherwise, there is a potential for war in Iraq, and that doesn't serve anybody's interest. I wanted to ask you about that. How close is the situation to war? It's very tense. Uh, our position is that our Peshmerga forces are in a defensive posture. We have not triggered any attacks or any deployments uh, that have, hasn't been in response to Iraqi deployments. But our Peshmerga will not attack, they will only defend. But it is a very tense situation and it won't take much for in a trigger, near trigger situation for something to go wrong. That's why we need a de-escalation, not just in words, but also in deeds. And we need the dialogue to begin, because in the absence of dialogue, then it's only the military that speak. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. I'd ask to come to order and not to be happening throughout. When families like mine stopped receiving benefit checks, our government was able to spending all night long with my honourable colleague uh, when, when Order. I would like to ask for some maturity from some members in this place.
those are scenes from question period just this past week. Screaming and heckling can make it really hard to hear what MPs are actually saying. A new study by Samara Canada suggests that most MPs think heckling has gotten out of control and that civility in question period has deteriorated over the years. Joining us today is Mike Morden, Research Director at Samara Canada. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So this kind of surprised me. Your study found 53% of MPs say heckling is a problem. 36% of them see it as a form of harassment. I'm pretty sure when I've sat in QB, I've seen every single one of them do it. Were you surprised at all by the numbers? Yeah, really interesting. I mean, there's a central paradox there, as you identify. MPs don't seem to like heckling that much, but overwhelmingly they do it. So we were challenged to try to pull that apart a little bit, try to figure out, okay, why might that be the case? And why do you think it is the case? Well, I think MPs are looking for opportunities to make themselves heard in constructive ways, substantive, serious ways, and sometimes in the absence of those opportunities, uh, that's how we end up with heckling. So just to give an example, overwhelmingly MPs say that they heckle to hold one another accountable. This is the most common reason given. Call a member out for an untrue statement, that kind of thing. Uh, but only about 15% actually think heckling increases accountability in the House of Commons. So they want tools to do their jobs as MPs, and sometimes in the absence of those tools, they end up just making noise. So do you think, based on your study and the conclusions you've drawn, is there a negative impact of heckling on democracy? Or, like you said, does it, as some argue, help them hold each other to account? Sure. So the kind of heckling we have is having a negative impact. You know, this is a small piece of a bigger puzzle, but it is a piece. So there's good research evidence to suggest, for example, that just watching politicians behave rudely to one another drives down our trust in not just those politicians, but in government and in our institutions. So it does matter. We know Canadians don't like the way question period sounds. And uh, MPs mostly acknowledge that, well, a little bit of back and forth, uh, you know, a pithy comment here and there could serve a useful purpose. The group shouts, the bullying, and then the heckling that clearly crosses the line content-wise uh, has to go. What about gender? Did you, did you find that gender plays a role in all of this? Yeah, interestingly, you know, we asked MPs, had they heard sexist heckling? Uh, Two-thirds of our female respondents said they had, they, that they had uh, only 20% of men. Okay, it's a fascinating finding given that they're all in the same room. And what constitutes sexist heckling? Well, we suggest any heckling that makes reference to gender and then uh, left that up to MPs to interpret. I mean, nonetheless, we think that's a, a fairly intriguing outcome. Uh, female MPs hear one thing, male MPs hear another. But there's also good evidence going back over the course of 100 years in Parliament that women are statistically more likely to be interrupted. So this is, uh, this is part of the reason it's a problem. It's a problem for recruitment of women and retention of female politicians. And longevity was also a factor. I know that rookie MPs had almost a, a different take than, than ones who had been around for a longer time. That's right. Rookies were more likely to be offended by the practice. Uh, half of rookies wanted to see it gone altogether. Seems like you spend more time in Parliament, you start to become acclimatized a little bit, you start to get used to it. When you first arrive, it's really something quite unusual, nothing like what we experience in the workplace otherwise. So what's interesting about that is this is a Parliament that has seen a lot of new MPs, almost 200 rookie MPs. And this is one of the reasons we wanted to uh, visit this question now. You know, is there a critical mass that would permit us to really make some change? So when we start looking towards solutions, I know that your study offers, has some recommendations. What are the main ones that you would want our viewers to come away with? 
there's lots we can do. In part, we want to treat heckling more as a symptom of a broader problem, which is a debate that is too insubstantial, too staged and theatrical. So there's small ways we can free the debate up so it's a little bit more authentic, more time for questions and answers, uh, less written aids, so less scripted talking points. We also think maybe it's a good time to revisit how we broadcast Parliament, we've been doing it a certain way for 40 years where the camera just faces on the person who is recognized to speak. You can misbehave off screen. We don't really know who's saying what. And you know, since MPs themselves agree with us that uh, the public, generally speaking, doesn't like heckling, we think we capture more of that behavior on camera. It might be a, a real strong disincentive. And just quickly before we go, have you had any reaction from MPs to those recommendations, especially the one about moving the cameras? Sure. Uh, we've, I mean, we had a number of conversations on the Hill uh, before the report came out and after, and uh, there's a lot of openness to trying some new things, which is great. We'll see what happens. Thanks a lot for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, westblock.ca, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.